elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 73. Regicide. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Thank you to my Patreon House of Lords, who help keep this podcast going, and who have been joined by Bradley, Baron Wilkinson, Veli Matti, Baron of Varys, and Baron Fabian. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, we saw the trial of the century. The 17th century, at least. Charles I, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, was put on trial for his life. The king refused to treat the High Court of Justice, set up by the purged House of Commons, the Rump Parliament, and without the assent of the House of Lords, as anything other than a mockery of justice. They had no constitutional right to judge anyone, certainly not an anointed king. The Chief Justice, John Bradshaw, attempted to justify their authority as coming from the will of the people, and Charles laughed in his face. He could trace his authority back to William the Conqueror, and he held it by the will of God. The king, the defendant, refused to acknowledge the court's legitimacy by pleading guilty or not guilty, and he would not condone the constitutional revolution which had already taken place. The trial was not a court of justice, but a battleground. The king and the commissioners fought a war of words, with both claiming the moral high ground, neither accepting the arguments of the other. When Charles refused to plead, and so implicitly accept the new political reality, any chance, slim though it might have been, to keep him on the throne, or even to spare his life, was gone. So, whether it was the plan all along, or if Charles's intransigence forced their hand, the court found the king guilty of treason against the people of England, and sentenced him to die. We left off last time, as the sentence of death was handed down on the 27th of January, and the king was removed from the court and blocked from speaking. Reactions to the sentence flooded in. 
Fairfax, who, remember, had refused to take part in the trial, was approached by a delegation of Dutch ambassadors, who sought to find a solution which would keep Charles's head. The Scottish commissioners in London wrote to both Fairfax and Cromwell, urging them to call off the regicide. Charles was their king too, after all, and the English had no right to unilaterally execute the King of Scots. Fairfax appears to have tried to postpone the execution at a council of war, but he found his words hit a resolute wall. Cromwell and Ireton would not be moved. Army unity was now dependent on the king's death, and Fairfax's authority among the officers was no longer absolute. An execution, of course, requires a death warrant, and a total of 59 of the judges signed it. The final tally included 19 army officers, including, of course, Oliver Cromwell and Henry Ireton, but also the king's former wardens, Edward Warley and Thomas Harrison, the purges of Parliament, Thomas Pride and Sir Hardress Waller, and respected veterans like William Goff and Colonel Oakey, but not Fairfax, Major General Skippen or Colonel Fleetwood. And if you're imagining this was a solemn occasion, think again. Charles Spencer reports that Cromwell and the radical MP Henry Martin occupied themselves during the signing by flicking their pens at each other, hurling the ink like bored kids in class. Not all the men who had been present at the trial and vocally assented to the sentence signed the document. 67 vocally assented to the sentence, but only 59 signed. Many of them had to be made to sign it. On the day of the sentence and the following day, Cromwell actively pursued those commissioners who were attempting to dodge their duty, and I mean that literally. When a group of commissioned MPs slipped by him into the House of Commons, Cromwell chased after them, shouting, quote, Those that are gone in shall set their hands. I will have their hands now. End quote. While these legal niceties took place, the king prepared himself for martyrdom. Charles burned what papers he had, somehow avoiding the guards that now watched his every move. He wrote to his sons. To the princes James and Henry, he urged them not to accept any deal with Parliament to place themselves on the throne ahead of their eldest brother. To Prince Charles himself, he wrote a 5,000-word screed, which one biographer describes as full of self-righteousness and self-pity, and his true epitaph. In it, he seems to have learnt nothing. He urged his heir to stand by the established church and resist any further reformation. The, quote, devil of reformation doth commonly turn himself into an angel of reformation, end quote. And he miserably complained that he had not been quick enough to see through the fake compliance of Presbyterians in England and elsewhere and to root out the sedition hidden behind it. He also urged Prince Charles to stand by his prerogative to overrule the written law because, quote, there being nothing worse than a legal tyranny, end quote. His fall had come about not by any overreach or stubbornness on his part, but because he had failed to see, quote, the wolves in sheep's clothing, who had sought to throw down the established church and the rule of law. Self-righteousness and self-pity indeed. Charles found spiritual relief from the former Bishop of London, William Juxon who was permitted to minister to him, and he got some emotional relief on the 29th, when he was allowed a visit from two of his children still in England, the 13-year-old Princess Elizabeth and the 8-year-old Prince Henry. He told Elizabeth, who was, of course, sobbing, quote, Sweetheart, you will forget this. She denied it, quote, I shall never forget this. I shall never forget it whilst I live. To his youngest son, he was more practical. 
Sitting the boy on his knee, he told him, quote, They will cut off my head, and perhaps make thee a king. But mark what I say, you must not be a king so long as your brothers Charles and James do live. They will cut off your brother's heads when they catch them, and cut off thy head too, at last. And therefore I charge you, do not be made a king by them. The eight-year-old boy replied, I will be torn in pieces first. Elizabeth recorded that, quote, these words coming so unexpectedly from so young a child rejoiced my father exceedingly, end quote. Then Charles gave them his remaining jewellery, his children were shepherded away from him, and he turned to prayer to distract himself from his grief. The morning of the execution, Charles was moved from St. James's Palace to the Palace of Whitehall, his place of death. He was moved on foot, with a guard of soldiers flying their standards and beating drums. Apparently, Charles had a pleasant chat with his current warden, Colonel Tomlinson, and he was also accompanied by former Bishop Juxon. The execution would take place outside the banqueting house, on a scaffold draped in black. The condemned would walk out of the hall through a doorway, specially knocked through the wall, from under a ceiling, decorated with the apotheosis of James I. This spectacular mural by Peter Paul Rubens took years to plan, and in 1632, after Charles made some final amendments, it was painted and installed by the Flemish artist. To quote the Royal Collections Trust, it celebrates James I's wise rule and peaceful reign, particularly his involvement in the union of the crowns that brought Scotland and England under one royal house. More broadly, the scheme was designed to enhance the prestige of the House of Stuart, emphasising the fundamental notion of divine rule by depicting the king's apotheosis and the symbols of monarchy, end quote. I have to wonder what Charles thought as he looked up at it, waiting for his cue to enter and then exit the stage. Soldiers and cavalry surrounded the site, but there was still plenty of space for spectators who flooded in their hundreds. Executions were always a public spectacle, fun for the whole family, but this was something else entirely. Famously, the 30th of January 1649 was an especially cold day, with parts of the Thames freezing over. The spectators arrived early in the morning, but it took until two in the afternoon before events really began. The crowds didn't understand why there was this delay, but backstage, some bright spark had realised that inconvenient truth of kingship I mentioned last time. As soon as they took Charles I's head, Charles II would become king. The rump and the army hadn't yet settled on the question of monarchy, and so to buy time a new ordinance was passed to block the proclamation of the king's successor. To proclaim the new king, as had happened with every succession, more or less, for centuries, was now treason. It was a legal placeholder designed to buy time, but it was enough for now. With that settled, the doors of the banqueting house opened, and out stepped the condemned king. Under his doublet, Charles wore two shirts, to better resist the bitter cold, and famously so that he didn't shiver. This would be mistaken as fear, and Charles wasn't afraid. He'd come to terms with his death. He was taken aback by the low height of the block. It was only six inches high, so he'd effectively have to lie flat to put his neck on it. A request to have a taller one brought out was denied. This one was surrounded by chains and manacles, just in case the condemned had to be restrained. They weren't needed in this case. Charles gave a short speech in which he proclaimed his innocence of the charges, begged God to forgive the men who had ordered his death, and insisted that he died, quote, a Christian according to the profession of the Church of England, end quote. 
Most of the crowd could not hear his words, but Tomlinson and some official reporters heard it all and made a record. When someone began to touch the axe, the king paused and asked them to stop in case they blunted the carefully sharpened blade, quote, hurt not the axe that may hurt me, end quote. He only had to think of his grandmother, Mary Queen of Scots, whose own execution had required multiple blows of a dull axe. He asked Colonel Hacker, the most senior officer on the scaffold, to make sure he wasn't put through unnecessary pain, just as someone else started to touch the axe as well, and he was less patient, quote, take heed of the axe, pray, take heed of the axe. He forgave his executioner, whose identity was hidden behind a mask. He asked if his famously long hair would be a problem, and the anonymous man confirmed it would be. So Charles took a cap from Juxon and pushed his hair into it, keeping his neck clear. Juxon then spoke to him, quote, There is but one stage more. This stage is turbulent and troublesome, but it is a short one. You may consider it will soon carry you a very great way. It will carry you from earth to heaven, and there you shall find a great deal of cordial joy and comfort, end quote. The king accepted this comfort gratefully, saying, quote, I go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown, where no distance can be, no disturbance in the world. Juxon agreed, quote, You are exchanged from a temporal to an eternal crown. A good exchange, end quote. Charles then knelt, said his prayers, and gave the prearranged signal. He thrust out his hands at the side, and the axe fell. In one strike, the king was beheaded. All sources report a spontaneous moan or groan or sigh coming from the spectators as their monarch's head fell into the basket and was held up by the second, also masked, executioner. Some rushed forward to dab cloths and handkerchiefs into his royal blood, but few got past the soldiers. With the deed done and witnessed, the signal was given and mounted soldiers moved through the packed crowd to disperse them. Within half an hour, the soldiers had cleared the spectators away. Charles's head was sewn back onto his body, and it was taken in a velvet-lined coffin not to Westminster Abbey, as was tradition, but to St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Better there, behind castle walls and locked gates and away from eulogising mourners than the very public abbey. Cromwell is reported to have stood at Charles's coffin and muttered, Cruel necessity. The Governor of Windsor refused to allow the Book of Common Prayer to be read, and the ceremony was conducted mostly in silence. Charles I was 48 years old, and had ruled England, Ireland and Scotland for nearly 24 years. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like 
Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So Charles Stewart is dead. He's been in our story basically since the start of Pax Britannica, when he was just a wee babby, a source of tension between his father, James VI and I, and his mother, Anna of Denmark. He started his reign in episode 127, and he was reigning over the rest of season 1. Of course, all of season 2 has covered the crises of the Three Kingdoms, in which he was, I think it's fair to say, pretty central. Thank you to everyone who emailed in since the last episode with your thoughts. They reminded me of a few things which I'd forgotten, and it was great to hear different perspectives on the guy. The character of Charles I is one of those battlegrounds of historiography. Whigs, Marxists, revisionists, post-revisionists, hyper-revisionists, and everyone else fight over the man at the centre of these events. The consensus, as much as there ever is on this period, is not kind to Charles, but different opinions are available. Mark Kishlansky and Kevin Sharp, revisionists who David Cressy has also termed hyper-revisionists, insisted that Charles was a good king forced into an impossible situation. After writing this script, let's just say that with all respect to Kishlansky and Sharp, I do not agree with them on that particular point. What can we say about Charles I? Firstly, he was not born to rule. He was 12 years old when his older brother, Henry, died and made him his father's heir. He was in the terrible position of constantly being compared to his brother, who of course died too young to become unpopular. Henry could have been the best king Britain and Ireland ever had, but he also could have been one of the worst, or just forgettable. But Charles was always compared to the unrealised reign of his brother, which, being a fantasy, was always going to be better than reality. He was not a man with many friends, he had a very different personality to that of his father, James, who gained a reputation as a gregarious spendthrift, with drunken parties of debauchery. This was not Charles's idea of a good time. He preferred order, ceremony, culture, and he could come across as quite stiff and formal. He consciously tried to emulate the kings of Spain, whose court he had experienced on his ill-fated attempt to woo the Infanta. His court was very different to his father's, or Elizabeth's. Where they were confident and effective public speakers, Charles struggled with a stammer for most of his life. In fact, he only seems to have won that struggle in his final days. His performance at his trial and his speech on the scaffold were noted for being some of the best oratory he ever gave. For much of his reign, he preferred the written word, and this had an effect on his reputation as distant. Let's talk about positives. He held sincere religious beliefs and his attachment to the Church of England, or at least his image of it, was genuine and uncompromising. The fears of Puritans, that Charles was on the brink of handing England back to the Pope, was never a possibility. He loved his church, he loved the ceremonies and the bishops and the structure, but of course, that was a sword with a very sharp double edge. But we're talking positives for now, so we'll gently leave that to one side. His friendships were few, but strong. His friendship with Buckingham was very deep and only ended by an assassin's dagger. 
His loyalty to Strafford, and to a lesser extent Lord, was more professional, but still solid. He fought for Strafford's position, and then his life, far harder than most other monarchs would have. He famously viewed signing Strafford's death warrant as an unforgivable sin, and one he would pay for with his own head. After the civil wars, one of the key planks of Charles's negotiations with Parliament was the fate of his supporters, and he kept pushing for amnesties to be extended to more of them. But these virtues had their downsides, which we'll consider in a moment, so add it to the pile of double-edged swords. He viewed his kingship as a responsibility and a duty, and he was determined to fulfil both. He wasn't content to just sit at the top of the great chain of being and wallow in his wealth and power. He wanted to govern, he wanted to reform, and I think he genuinely wanted to rule wisely and justly. It's unfortunate that his mindset was so strict and intolerant of disagreement, which, again, we'll cover shortly, so add this to the small armoury of double-edged swords we're apparently building. Charles's love of art was famous. I mentioned earlier the banqueting house ceiling, which you can still see today, which the king spent much time, energy, and money having commissioned. His collection of paintings was vast, and included works by some of the greatest artists of the period. It speaks to the character of the man. His father collected art, but Charles adored it. He was known to spend hours in his galleries. Politics didn't come naturally to Charles, but after the Bishops' Wars, he quickly learned how to build a faction of supporters inside and outside Parliament, and they would become the foundation of the Royalist cause. But there's more to say on that, so into the armoury with it. I think we have to give Charles some credit for the peace of the personal rule. Obviously, this comes with massive caveats. This has a lot to do with his resistance to calling a parliament for taxation. And then there's the two wars with France and Spain at the start of his reign, and, you know, everything after 1639. But because of either deliberate decision or financial necessity, the three Stuart kingdoms were not thrown into the hellscape that was the Thirty Years' War. His subjects sailed off to fight in their own private capacity, but Charles attempted diplomacy to end the conflict, protect Protestantism, and restore his family to the Palatinate. One thing that is often said about Charles, and stop me if you've heard this before, is that he was a good family man, and that he loved his family. Almost every history of this period mentions that trait at some point, and I've said it myself. Edward Hyde, the future Earl of Clarendon, and the first historian of this period, lists it as one of his greatest virtues, that he was, quote, the best husband, the best father, and the best Christian that the age in which he lived had produced, end quote. Even Cromwell noted it, when he recorded being brought to tears by the sight of the king spending time with his family in captivity. And it's true, he was a family man, he loved his family and wanted them to be safe. It was primarily his fear for his family that led the king to flee London in 1641. Charles would send armies to counter threats to his family, even if they weren't the most strategic moves. This is less of a double-edged sword, but I have my issues with it, so let's put it with the rest. Now, let's open the doors to that armoury of two-bladed weapons and talk about the negatives. I think it's fair to say that Charles was a stubborn man, and he struggled to separate the concept of disloyalty from disagreement. We saw that with his outrage when the parliaments of the 1620s dared to criticise his policies. He saw criticism and opposition over policy as a personal attack. He simply didn't have the flexibility of his father, 
James said that he was a divinely ordained king whose power and authority was absolute, but James also understood the reality of politics. Even at that level, compromise was needed. James had faults, and he laid the groundwork for some of the issues his heir would struggle to handle, but he understood that a king was also a politician, and that for all his rhetoric of divine right, the three Stuart kingdoms needed to be governed carefully, with consideration, with compromise. Charles listened to his father, and read his political treatise, Basilicon Doron, and took it all literally, without engaging with the reality of politics. He walked into traps that didn't need to be traps, that weren't even laid as traps, when his father, of a slightly better politician, could have danced around them. He did eventually learn to build and unite a royalist faction, but this damns him with faint praise. He was a king. Kings were meant to be above faction, a unifying force that was beyond mundane political squabbles. The fact that he had to stoop to the level of petty politics is a sign of how much distance there was between the king and the political nation, and it did little to prevent a civil war. His love for ceremony and his Church of England blinded him to the resistance the Laudian reforms were whipping up. He stacked the church hierarchy, ignoring the balance between high church theologians and Calvinist reformers which his father had so carefully maintained. His reforms, despite claiming to be based on ancient Christianity, looked and sounded like popery to many. Moving communion tables away from the congregation, fencing them off with altar rails, insisting that worshippers bow, these were all very visible changes. For parishes filled with the hotter sort of Protestant, they were changes that could not be ignored, and were a weekly reminder that, in their mind, their king seemed to be winding back the Reformation. If these changes had been lightly enforced, that would be one thing. But the Court of High Commission under Archbishop Lord was determined to enforce conformity. This all bred resentment. His determination to bring the Scottish Kirk closer to the Church of England was a terrible idea that was an out-and-out mistake. Charles's loyalty to his ministers is admirable, but it was politically damaging when those ministers were unpopular. First and foremost, the Duke of Buckingham, whose assassination was welcomed by many, but also Archbishop William Lord and the Earl of Strafford. His loyalty to these men was nice, but it wasn't sensible, a wiser, more ruthless king, like his father, would have tied Strafford to the rock of unpopularity and kicked him overboard. He might have shed a tear or two doing it, but he'd have done it easily if it was needed. James let more than one close adviser be impeached to keep royal authority secure, whereas his son condemned any criticism of his ministers or his policies and fought every impeachment, and often made it worse. Had Buckingham not been given so much power and influence? and given positions he was not competent in, would he have been so hated? If he'd not been an incompetent Lord High Admiral, a resentful veteran might not have rammed a dagger through his chest. Strafford might have survived had Charles not dug in his heels until a death sentence was demanded and undeniable. Lord might have used a lighter touch if he didn't have Charles's complete backing and urging to go further. Charles's stubbornness and fervent belief in the divine right of kings also led him to throwing off the ever-useful cover of evil counsellors. When his policies were unpopular, 
reformers and critics insisted that these were surely the work of the king's ministers, not the king himself, only for Charles to unhelpfully declare that no, actually, they were his ideas, his policies. Everyone should just follow his commands as loyal subjects, and you're acting like traitors for disagreeing. This did nothing to win people over, and by his own hand, Charles made mere critics into opponents, and opponents into rebels. Charles was dedicated to his supporters, but only up to a point. When Charles finally did abandon his loyal followers, it wasn't for political advantage, but out of personal anger. When the Duke of Hamilton failed to prevent the Scottish Covenanters invading in support of Parliament, Charles had him arrested and thrown into Pendennis Castle. When Prince Rupert faced reality and surrendered Bristol, Charles was angry enough to believe rumours that his nephew was a traitor and ordered him to leave the kingdom. Of course, we have to mention Charles's unique approach to diplomacy and negotiation. This is the field where I think his fervent belief in the divine right of kings, his appointment by God, and his responsibility to God alone did Charles the most damage. Charles believed that only God could judge him, and that God was on his side. He answered only to his conscience, only to God. No promise with rebels could ever be a fraction as sacred. He made so many promises throughout his reign, even before the wars, that he never intended to keep. How many times did Charles go back on his word, or secretly plot, only for it to spectacularly blow up in his face? The graces in Ireland, the prayer book and the incident in Scotland, the army coup in England. How many times did Charles say that he graciously accepted the demands of his subjects, only to immediately plot to reverse them? His negotiations with the Irish Confederacy were just years of continuous bad faith lying. He was so distrusted by the Scottish Covenanters that they realised Charles needed to be crushed in England for there to be any chance he'd keep his promises to them. And in England? The spiral into civil war was Charles repeatedly showing his critics, not enemies, not rebels, just critics of royal policy, that he could not be trusted to keep any agreements or concessions he made. As soon as he had the upper hand, militarily or politically, he'd turn the clock back. And then after he was defeated for the first time, Charles's negotiations were a farce. Even with the engagement with the Scots, he planned to get the upper hand after his victory. Every concession that was squeezed out of him, he had no intention of keeping. Charles was prepared to promise everyone everything they wanted, and hope that no one talked. But of course, every time, someone talked, because someone always talks or because Charles wrote down all his mutually exclusive and politically damning correspondence and let his enemies capture it, which happened like three times. The other element to his disastrous negotiation style was his complete, and completely unfounded, confidence in his own abilities and position. He'd renege on his promises as soon as he could, but that was only if you could get a promise out of him. Charles was fatally overconfident in his own cunning and the support he believed he had, he was convinced, both during the First Civil War and after he was imprisoned by his enemies, that victory was just over the next hill. An army would come from Scotland. An army would sail from Ireland. Royalists would rise in England. His sons or his wife would bring support from Europe. All he had to do was hold out, not give an inch, and God would deliver. Enemies who had been killing each other for years, Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, Covenanters and Royalists in Scotland, die-hard Royalists and moderate Parliamentarians in England, 
would surely band together in an unshakable coalition to put him back on the throne. He wouldn't need to give up anything. So even after he lost the First Civil War, compromises which would have kept his head, kept his crown, or even kept a substantial amount of royal power, he dismissed out of hand. Admittedly, they usually founded on the rocks of Charles's sincere religious beliefs, but until the last few months of his life, Charles was right about one thing. He was necessary to any deal. Multiple deals were presented to him. The ball was in his court. The political initiative was his to take. And each time, he was convinced that he could get everything he wanted without giving up anything if he stuck to his guns. When the reality of his situation finally set in, as his household was stripped to the bone, he appears to have recognised the opportunities he'd thrown away when he wished he'd accepted the Newcastle propositions. Charles's execution was due to the failure to reach a constitutional settlement between the victorious Parliament and the twice-defeated King, and the blame for that failure lies almost entirely with Charles. Yes, the New Model Army stepped in in the autumn of 1648 and removed much of his agency, but he had years to accept reality and compromise before it came to that. His final letter to his heir shows, I think, that he went to his death convinced that he was still in the right, and that he was a martyr in every sense of the word. Lastly, and this isn't really a negative trait, but it's something that occurred to me recently, Charles was a family man. He loved his family. Everyone says so, even Cromwell, who would help take his head. It usually comes up in any biography of the king or history of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms that, whatever else, whatever his failings, Charles Stuart was a decent husband and a decent father. But so what? How low does the bar have to be to make man loves family an accomplishment? Did serial wife murderer Henry VIII throw off our expectations for a king so much that if they show a basic human concern it can be hailed as an accomplishment? Or is it a sign of how few objective achievements can be claimed by Charles that we have to scrape the barrel and say, well, at least he wasn't a psychopath towards his wife and children? Also, he hardly went overboard with his love for his family. His sister, Elizabeth, and his nephews were still fighting for the restoration of the Palatinate. Charles tried to help, but after the failed parliaments of the 1620s, he basically wrote off direct military assistance and instead focused on diplomacy. Ship money and the fleet it built was part of that strategy, and he mostly supported private efforts to fight in the Thirty Years' War. But only parliamentary taxation could fuel a proper English war effort, and he preferred to stay out of it if it meant avoiding parliaments. Speaking of those nephews, Prince Rupert of the Rhine was effectively exiled by Charles, furious after his surrender of Bristol, and believing ungrounded rumours that Rupert was in Parliament's pocket. This is not the behaviour of a man overwhelmed by familial love. Another nephew, Charles Louis, was suspected by Charles of plotting with Parliament to replace him on the throne, when he arrived in London to ask for aid in the Thirty Years' War. As we saw, it wasn't an entirely unreasonable suspicion, but it speaks to a king who feared his relatives as potential threats. And, of course, there was his final conversation with his children, the day before his execution. His apparent delight that his youngest son swore he would be torn to pieces before being made a king. It's hyperbole from a child overwhelmed by events, recorded by another child overwhelmed by events, but still. That said, I think we have to make allowances for much of this. Fighting and losing a civil war has to be stressful, 
and literally walking to your death must make one a tad morbid. And of course, Charles was still a king, and his family was a matter of state. But I think the importance of Charles's reputation as loving his family is a tad overstated in how big a deal it really was. It's part of a wider picture of a man who, for all his many faults, wasn't a cackling monster who was cruel for the sake of cruelty. He wasn't a Henry VIII or William the Conqueror. He was just a very bad king in all the ways that mattered at that time and in that place. No one made him declare war on France and Spain at the same time, without securing the resources from Parliament to fight a proper war. No one made him cling to Buckingham, despite his very clear unpopularity across the kingdom and in Parliament. No one forced him to upset the balance of the Jacobean Church by appointing Lordian bishops and suppressing Presbyterians, or to try and enforce Lordian conformity in every parish. No one made Charles impose a new prayer book on Scotland. No one made him abandon the Irish graces in the 1620s. And above all, no one forced Charles to view every policy as a test of loyalty and royal authority or to see criticism, resistance, or anything other than immediate and total acceptance as different shades of sedition. Charles I wasn't bloodthirsty, or especially cruel as kings go, but he was willing to use military force to get his way, first in Scotland, then Ireland, and then in England. He saw this as his right and responsibility, and his enemies as rebels and heretics. The Stuart kingdoms were a complicated mess of competing demands. Riven with ethnic and religious division, and the wars of the three kingdoms had many causes. A lot of these factors were outside of Charles's control. Not all of them, not even most of them, should have been beyond his ability to handle. The challenges of ruling three very different kingdoms were substantial, but they weren't impossible to manage. For a better king. David Cressy has a nice turn of phrase in his article, The Blindness of King Charles. He says, quote, Commentators on kingship sometimes wondered whether it was better for a ruler to be loved than feared. But Charles I, alas, was neither. I actually began writing this script feeling fairly neutral towards Charles, if you can believe that. Yes, he was a bad king, I thought to myself, but he wasn't awful. But now, after revisiting all our happy memories of his time on the throne, it's hard to avoid this conclusion. The guy was a stubborn idiot. He was completely convinced of his own moral superiority. He was incapable of accepting that the people he was dealing with held genuine and sincere political and religious positions, and that this did not make them traitors. Whatever he needed to do to preserve and then restore his divinely ordained authority was justified in his mind. Whatever his cultured personality, his love of art, his polite manner, no matter how much he loved his family. Charles I was a bad king, and so hundreds of thousands of people died, a tally which included, in the end, himself. That marks the end of season two of Pax Britannica. The wars of the Three Kingdoms are not over, but when we return with season three, the new English regime will quickly assert itself over its enemies within England, and then enforce its will over Ireland and Scotland. The next season will see the establishment of a republic, the Commonwealth, and a Lord Protector. The Cromwellian invasions of Scotland and Ireland. The reaction to the regicide in the American and Caribbean colonies. Cromwell's western design to seize valuable Spanish slave colonies in the Caribbean. The Anglo-Dutch War, and the growing power of the East India Company. It's going to be a very interesting and very global season. 
I'm going to take a couple of weeks off before we start all that. If you need a history fix in the meantime, check out airwavemedia.com to find other great history podcasts. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bristol, Bill Winkus, the Marquess of Hull, Steve Cloutier, and Lloyd Collins, Earl of Portland. You can join their ranks and receive ad-free episodes by going to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.